just want to take the time to quickly greet all of you and welcome you once again to our Sabbath service. And to the folks that are online, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. As you saw during our ministry announcements, we did stop by a few small contingent of us and visit with Pastor Shaw last week. And while we were there, Sister Shaw mentioned to me um, there's a special online member that has recently joined our church. That's this Sister Robin Powell. Just want to send a special greeting to you. This is a young lady that Sister Shaw has been studying with. Uh, they met at the senior center, even though I just said young lady. Um, but we thank you for being a part of our community. We thank you for your support. And we act, well, I hope that you're blessed by today's service. Quick public service announcements before I get started. Um, and as you heard, and many of you shared during the uh, intercessory prayer, there's a lot of people dealing with stuff. A lot of people dealing with stuff. Sometimes it's not physical, it's also spiritual as well as mental. Um, this is something that has been constantly coming to my attention almost every day. And I even had a conversation with uh, Elder Mark this week, and uh, he mentioned to me, which it just kind of reinforces what I already know, that we have folks, even within our own congregation, that are dealing with uh, house security, uh, sometimes known as homelessness, but it doesn't always look the same way. Sometimes it means folks are jumping from one location to the next, moving from house to house or relative to relative or, or couch hopping. We have folks that are dealing with food insecurity. Uh, we have folks that are dealing with job insecurity. So there are things that, um, you know, oftentimes we may think to ourselves, well, only a few of us show up or only a few of us are the ones leading out or doing something. If you're one of those few, just praise God and thank God that you're able to do it that day. Because I'm no longer trying to burden anybody with, if all you can do is simply roll up, sit up in bed, and turn on the YouTube to either watch us or watch another service, praise God for that. I don't want you to feel in any type of way that you're forced to come out because I understand that the pressure is great in regards to what people are dealing with. So let's just show each other a little bit of love and some grace and understanding. If we don't see folks from time to time, who knows what they may be going through, but they're going through it as we're going through it. Whatever the issue is, it's there. So let's just pray for one another, let's love one another, let's show grace to one another, and if you are so concerned, reach out. You don't need to make a public uh, announcement regarding it, but just privately reach out to those that, you, that have been on your mind, that you're thinking about, that you care about, to let them know that you're concerned, amen? All right, as my wife mentioned also during uh, the intercessory prayer, I did lose an aunt this week. Um, my father's sister, my father is one of 12. Um, they all hail from the island of Antigua. And this aunt that I lost was the youngest of them, uh, so she'd be about in her late 60s. And it was just only a couple weeks ago that they were all together down in Antigua just kind of having a quick reunion. And now here we are two weeks later. On Wednesday night sometime to Thursday morning, she suffered a stroke. She's also a breast cancer survivor, but she suffered a stroke sometime during the night and um, was rushed to the hospital pretty much Thursday morning. They kept her on life support for pretty much a day. By th Friday, they realized that surgery or any type of medication wasn't gonna change the outcome. Um, they took her off life support just a, just a little bit before 4 p.m. yesterday and within half an hour, she had passed. So it's a reminder that life is short. It's a reminder that death is unnatural, right? Because we don't think about the desire to die, we think about the desire to live. 
So with that in mind, let's just kind of go back and focus again on the sermonic text, which I gave you guys, and you all know it so well. It's the most memorized, most well-known among Christians, it's among non-Christians, of that being John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you think about that verse, when you contemplate on that verse, there are a few things that jump out or should jump out to you. Number one is God's love. Number two is, at least for me, is the concept or the idea of what we call eternity or everlasting life. Think about the context of this verse. Um, there is a discussion between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. This man named Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was probably a Pharisee. The Bible says he was one. And he comes to Jesus by night because he sees Jesus performing all these signs and miracles. And he is questioning in his head as to what is this all about? How can I obtain? How can I understand exactly what you're doing? Because what you're doing is so good, it has to come from God. It has to come from a place where it is better than where I am physically and right now. And as Christians, even today, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that we worship the way we worship? Why is it that we pray to an invisible God? Why is it that we attempt to keep the commandments to show that we love God or that we attempt to keep the commandments to show that we love one another? Why is that? Are we looking for something? Are we desiring something? If I'm honest with myself, I have a desire to experience, to touch, to feel, to taste eternity in a very tangible, realistic way as if I'm holding on to this podium. That's what it's about for me, at least. I don't know about you, but I know that the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. So it's probably safe to assume that as a Christian, at some point in time, if not every single day, you've thought about the idea, the reality, the future reality of what it will be like to live for eternity, to have everlasting life. So if eternity is a question that you have on your heart or something that you pondered in your mind, I'd like for us to kind of focus on that concept here this morning. And we're going to pick it up from a question that was asked of Jesus regarding the idea of eternal life. Similar to what Nicodemus was trying to do, this is the story of a young, rich ruler. It's found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but we're going to look at it this morning from the Gospel of Mark. We find the story in Mark chapter 10, starting in verses 17 through 31. And I am going to read it in your hearing. Once again, we're going to look at it from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And this is what we have known or entitled as the rich young ruler, a prominent yet unnamed individual who comes to Jesus and asks him a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? you have it. All right, reading from verse 17, Mark chapter 10, I have the New King James Version. It says, now as he, he being Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, 
what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your father and your mother. And the young man answered Jesus and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross, and follow me. But the young man was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But here's a clarification. Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to inherit the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but with God it is not. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say, kind of boisterous, see we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there is no one that has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Points of consideration for today as we study, discuss the concept, the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? Point number one, I want us, as we look at this story, to recognize the faulty human condition of this rich young ruler. Second thing I want us to do is take a look at the purpose of the Ten Commandments in the plan of salvation. And then finally, we're going to talk about the power of a God that loves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause now to set aside life as we know it. Father, our focus, our attention is on you. Enlighten us with your word. Show us something about your nature that will help us in our journey towards salvation. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son that you gave so willingly and freely that we may have eternal life. Tabernacle with us, guide us, send your Holy Spirit to enrich us in our understanding and wisdom of what will be shared. Father, now hide me safely and securely behind the cross so that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone may be seen, felt, and heard. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we got the story of the rich young ruler. Let's put this into context, right? So we have Jesus with his disciples in the region of Judea. And 
we come up with this story because we have to look at all three of the Synoptic Gospels kind of in tandem. We have all three of the Gospels call this individual, who's unnamed, a rich person. He has possessions, he has great wealth. If you look at it from the account of Matthew in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew qualifies this individual as a young person. You go to the account in the Gospel of Luke, Luke indicates that this person is a ruler. So when you put all three of these Gospels together, you come up with the title, Rich Young Ruler. You gotta kind of all put them together. One thing to note is that this young man, possibly because of his age, probably knew the Apostle Paul, right? He was a ruler, most likely he was part of the Pharisees because he believed in the concept of the idea of an eternal life. If he was a Sadducee, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They thought this is it, the here and now, what you can gain on earth is all that there is to come. But in light of that context, let's focus on what Christ actually says in conversation with this young man, because there are some very key important points that he brings up. And finally, we are going to be confronted and comforted with what Christ is telling us. He's given us correction as well as salvation message wrapped up together in one. So let's go ahead and get to it. The time is 1214. Give me about 30 minutes and we'll be out of here. Sounds good? All right. Point number one, the faulty condition of the rich young ruler, or we can say the human believer. So before we start dogging on this young guy, let's look at some positive qualities of this rich young ruler, all right? Looking at verse 17, it says, a young man came running publicly, all right? Compared to what we know in John 3:16 and the conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, a ruler, came at night. This young man came running at day in public for everybody to see. So he had an eagerness to know and understand exactly what Jesus was doing. So that's one good thing about him. The next thing, it says that this young man knelt down before Jesus. If you know anything about rich, powerful people, you don't usually see them kneeling before anyone, do you? It's usually somebody either bowing or kneeling before them. But this man, this young man, knelt down before Jesus. Okay, we got to give him credit for that. It shows that he's humble at least, right? It also says that he referred to Jesus as good. This is a sign of respect, you know. It's a title that you would give to somebody that you at least recognize that they are in a position of teaching, of power, of being able to guide you along a path. So he had eagerness on his side. He had the fact that he was humble. He also had the fact that uh, he showed respect for those to be in authority. Another good thing about this young man is that he had a very good understanding of the Word of God. Now, why do I say that? As a probably part, being part of the Pharisees, he's probably an expert in the law. But as Christians, if we were to go back and examine, let's say, the first five books of the Bible, what they call as the law, the law of Moses, the books of Moses, the Torah, however you want to look at it, outside of the Garden of Eden, you're not going to come across any type of promise, any type of indication regarding eternal life. If you want to go look at Exodus chapter 20, just because you keep the commandments, you're not going to see a promise of eternal life. You're going to see one promise, 
the fifth commandment of honoring your parents to giving you long life. But besides that, there's no promise of eternal life. But yet, this young man had a excellent understanding, knowledge of the scripture because it is in the Old Testament, and that's all they had at this time, that the concept, the idea of eternal life is talked about. Let me give you a few texts. You could write them down and maybe take a look at them later on. The first one you're going to find in Psalms 7120. I'm just giving you a few. Another one in Isaiah 2619. You have one in Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. And then probably one that you know even more uh, familiar with, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. I'll read that one for you. It says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting content. So we got this man who has an understanding of scripture. He's not just looking at the law. He's looking at the totality of all the writings, the poems that we get from the Psalms, the prophets, and what they had to say and what God said through his servants and what was delivered to the nation of Israel. So he has eagerness on his side. He has the fact that he is humble. He has the fact that he is respectful. He has the fact that he knows the word. And all of these things are good qualities. The young man also has a sense of morality, right? When Jesus said to him, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not defraud on your father and your mother, he eagerly said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So he had an understanding of what was right and what was wrong. He was confident in himself to say, you know what, I've been trying to do my best in keeping these things. And there's nothing wrong with being rich, powerful, and young. These are traits that are desirable in almost every age and every culture across the history of time, right? You think about how many pro products are marketed so that people can maintain a youthful appearance. You think about the fact that powerfulness attracts so many followers, even followings on social media. The fact that you can influence anybody is seen as an attractive trait. Being rich is perceived as being blessed by God. We have the idea of the prosperity gospel. But in all of that, there is an issue when you start to use money as a barometer for measuring the moral compass or the morality of yourself as in and others. When you use money the wrong way, when you use it to measure your faith and measure that of others, you start to develop a false sense of security, which is one of the problems that this young man had. When you use money in that sense, you start to look at it from the fact that if I continue to work hard, I'm going to continue to reap the rewards of my hard labor. While that may appear true, that is not a 100% fits all for every situation. Another problem that money does for the Christian, it fosters a false sense of righteousness. Rather than being hands-on, people with money will say, you know what, well, I can uh, pay somebody to lead the praise and worship. Or I can pay somebody to come speak to the congregation. I can, rather than go down to the homeless shelter, I can send some money, write a check, and I don't have to do anything else. 
The money is used as a separation from being connected to the work of God. Another thing that money often does, and often does incorrectly in the context of being Christians, is that it influences ministry way too much. What do I mean by that? Some people will say, you know what, I have a calling on my life to go be an evangelist across the world. Then they'll say, God, show me how you're going to take care of me first before I step out on faith and do that calling. They'll say, I have a calling on my life to, to sing, but I need you to make this song blow up on whatever platform first so I can make a ton of money. That way I feel vindicated that the calling on my life is legit. So people are looking and they're waiting for what money's gonna do to vindicate the calling that they think they're gonna have. And Christ is calling all of us and money has nothing to do with it. The other thing that money does, and it does incorrectly when we look at it from a Christian viewpoint, is that it restricts the gospel message and it creates a divide between the haves and the have-nots. In the context of churches and what we see today, churches with a lot of money will def definitely have probably the newest, the best technology, the screens, the pews, the colors, uh, the fanfare, the lights, the special performers that come in versus the churches that have very little to no money at all are struggling just to stay open. And the message doesn't go out because people feel and think, well, because we have no money or not enough money, we can't do anything. Money is not related at all to the gospel message and the work that needs to be done. But with all these things that were going for him and, and then these down points that we looked at in regards to how this rich young ruler was addressing or trying to understand the concept of eternity and how he could get to it, we have to look at it from the fact that God was going to correct this young man. He's going to point him back to something, and then he's going to tell this young man to come and follow him. And it's a good thing that we have a God that is so loving, so kind, so generous, that he will look at us, see our situation, and say, you know what, that's okay. Come follow me anyway. Let's look at point number two, the purpose of the commandments and the plan of salvation. So after this initial encounter, Jesus, the young man runs up to Jesus. He says, you know what, I desire to have eternal life. What do I got to do? Jesus says, wait a second, why do you call me good? Do you know who you're talking to? You are talking to only one person that's good, and that's God. I'm he. He's claiming that he's a deity. The next thing that he does, immediately after that, he says, you know the commandments. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And then the rich young ruler answered him and said, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now pause, wait a minute. This guy probably came up to Jesus expecting to get something new. And then when Jesus says, wait a second, all you gotta do is look at everything I've been telling you since this nation existed. You don't have to do anything new. Look back at that and this guy gets really excited and says, yeah, I've been doing all of that since the moment I was a young person. And when he says that, you gotta understand he's saying this publicly. Everybody is watching this conversation happen. Everybody is seeing the dialogue and hearing it for themselves. And nobody from the crowd steps out and says, wait a second. I saw that guy 
Last week, climbing out of Sister So-and-So's window. You don't hear that. Nobody from the crowd says, wait a second, I saw this guy last week robbing the temple sanctuary. You don't hear that. Nobody jumps out of the crowd and says, I saw this guy disrespecting his parents when he was coming up. He's not all that. Nobody says that. Nobody says, I saw this guy trying to sneak a body out of the city and bury it because he killed him. Nobody says that. So we got to give him some credit, right? He at least was doing the things outwardly that people used to profess and hide behind to say, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good follower of Jesus Christ. Just because we see you doing certain things, it gives a false impression of who was really behind those eyes. Because being a Christian is not just about the outward actions. It's about the attitude and the priorities that you have set. You know, I oftentimes think when the idea of people come expecting Christ to give them something new, people are always looking for something new being the answer, whether it's in regards to, to diet and exercise, whatever the new fad is, whether it's in regards to getting attention and you have to dress a certain and unique way, uh, whether it's in regards to finding the right place to worship. Well, this church is doing this over here, so let me hop over and get a new type of revelation or a new type of belief. But here God is saying, you don't have to do anything new. What I'm talking about has been there since the beginning. I'm pointing you back to the law. But let's understand the law and let's try to break that down a little bit because it's not about actions, it's about attitude. People lie with their inner thoughts to themselves and to God every single day. People commit adultery and fornication in their mind every day. Children disrespect their parents and cuss them out as if it means nothing whatsoever at all. And people kill with the power of the tongue every single day. So even though you haven't done something with a physical action, your mindset, what you're thinking about, is wrong. And this is what the Savior is trying to point this young man to, to say, wait a second, Let's look at these Ten Commandments. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's understand exactly what it is you're focused on and why do you think you can be perfect. Let's back up again. The Ten Commandments Jesus was using was simply just a mirror to hold up in front of the young man to say, you know what? If you want to be perfect, go ahead and inspect yourself. There's only one that can be good, and that's God. Jesus is saying to the young man, if you want to have my job, if you want to be perfect, if, if you want to be good, here's everything that you got to do. This is what the job application says. Go ahead and attempt to do your best to try and fit that role. This guy was blinded by his wealth, his possessions, his power, his influence, his youth, his eagerness, that he didn't realize that the commandments that were quoted they didn't really speak to his heart, his character, his mind. You notice that covetousness was left out of it. You notice that idol worship was left out of it. You notice that having nothing before God was left out of what Jesus had to say. But Jesus did love this young man. And he wanted to show him that, hey, you only lack one thing. The one thing you lack is simply you are holding on to something more than you're holding on to me. 
You know, and that's pretty impressive that he only lacked one thing, because perhaps if God was speaking to me, he would have said, Michael, 10 things you lack. But you know what? You can still come and follow me. Receiving the gift of eternity, of eternal life, comes in the following of Christ daily. What we're asked to possibly part ways with, either temporarily or permanently, mean nothing ultimately in the grand scheme of what you want or desire to have for eternal life. So God is saying to this young man who's unnamed, and when you have somebody who's unnamed, it typically means that you can generally ascribe them to a large group or any group of people. So you can see yourselves in this scripture because we're not looking at it from an individual perspective first. It's an unnamed person. So it's being applied to everyone broadly to say, you know what, God, what is it that I'm holding on to that is keeping me from following you? So we've looked at the idea that this young man, even in his human condition, he had some good things going for him, but yet he had a few things in regards to how he perceived the law that was keeping him from going all the way. We looked at the commandments that Jesus, rather than state something new, the gospel message is the same for Adam as it is for us today, that if you want to be saved, there's only one way you can do it, by following me daily. The law, the commandments are simply used only as a mirror to point out what's going on. But yet, just because you don't have it all together, here's the important piece. This is point number three, the power of God's love. Just because you don't have it all together, just because you're not perfect, the answer, the response that Christ gives is, that's okay, come and follow me. He told him he wasn't all together. He told him he didn't have it all figured out. He said, one thing you lack, doesn't matter. Give that stuff away, come and follow me. This idea, this concept that we have to clean up our lives first, that we have to get everything in order, that we have to be perfect when we come to church. We have to dress a certain way. We have to talk a certain way. We got to uh, return our tithe and offering, and we have to do that consistently before we can be baptized, possibly. That's not it. That's not what Christ is saying. Christ is saying, eh, whatever your issue or issues are, put that to the side and come and follow me. This is what he told the young man. And it's important that we look at it from Mark's account because only Mark says this. In verse 21, Mark said that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I often think that when this young man told Jesus that all these things he had kept from his youth, he was saying it from a point of sincerity. He honestly felt that. Jesus looked at him, realized that he was sincere, realized that he was doing his best, and even though he wasn't perfect, he still loved him. You don't have to be perfect, and Christ will still love you. That's the power of God. It's a common misunderstanding when we read this story and we think about it that Jesus was also possibly asking this young man to make a sacrifice. That's an incorrect assessment. Jesus was not asking this young man to make a sacrifice. He was asking this young man to make a trade. Well, what's the difference between a trade and a sacrifice? Sacrifice, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Sacrifice, he did something, he gets nothing in return. That's sacrifice. Us trading our sins, trading our mistakes, trading uh, what we hold on to for the gift of eternal life, that's not a sacrifice, that's making a trade. We're taking one thing and exchanging it for another. That's what Jesus was asking this young man to do.
But the Bible doesn't say what exactly what this young man was thinking. But I imagine that he was probably thinking, you know what, if I give up my possessions, I'm a young guy. How long do I got to wait to get eternal life? If Jesus maybe had responded and said, you know what, tomorrow your eternal life is going to start. Do you think the young man may have done it? I don't know. If Jesus said, you know what, all you got to do is wait a week. You give up your stuff, wait a week, eternal life is yours. Do you think he would have done it? I don't know. But I imagine he's thinking in his head. He's a young guy, and he's saying, you know what, uh, I'm 20, man. I, I got another 50, 60, you know, I'm a veg vegetarian, so maybe I got another 100 years to go. <laughs> Why do I got to wait that long, give up all my stuff? Can I experience wealth, pleasure, power throughout my earthly life and still get eternal life? I'm just thinking in my head, that's probably what this young man was thinking and probably why he went away sad, right? Because if you knew it was going to be an immediate exchange of giving up something and eternal life is yours immediately, I imagine most of us would raise our hand and say, yep, sign me up. But possibly what we do today is we tell God, you know what, um, I hear you calling, I hear you offering this, but at the moment I got to tell you not yet because I'm still trying to get my education first. I'm still trying to build my career, so not yet. Uh, I'm still trying to get married, maybe start a family, so, so not yet. I can't, I can't give up everything I got and come follow you, not yet. I'm still trying to go travel the world and, and see everything first, so I can't follow you, not yet. I need to experience more of what life has to offer, so God, you're going to have to wait a second, not yet. For some of us, it may be as simple as, God, I'm still busy scrolling on my phone. So not yet. But God is calling. And it's about what are we choosing to trade for the concept, the idea of eternal life. Let me point you to a few scriptures. Matthew 13, 44. It's the parable of the hidden treasure. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy of it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. God is telling us that's the value of the kingdom of heaven, that everything that you have right now is worth trading for eternity. You got the parable of the pearl of a great price, going into the next verse, Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went, sold all that he had and bought it. That's the trade. That's the trade value. Everything that you have, everything that's been given to you as a gift, everything that you use to interact and to socialize with the world around you, if you were to uh, combine all of that, the accumulation of all of that, it is worth the value of salvation. Not even close, but that's the trade that Christ is offering you. Give it all, and here's eternity. That's the trade, not the sacrifice. But let me highlight one more point before we get to the appeal. You know, when, when Peter speaks up and, and they've, the disciples have seen this interaction with Jesus and this rich young man, Peter boisterously says, look, we've left all and followed you. And Jesus has to correct Peter yet still in this. He says to Peter, verse 29, so Jesus answered and said, surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this time, so that means in the life that they're currently living, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, a life eternal. So what Jesus is telling Peter and what we know from scripture is that Peter didn't have to give up everything. We know that after the resurrection, when Christ went looking for some of his disciples, he found Peter working. He found him fishing, right? He told him, cast a net on the other side. He does it. They catch a great amount of fish. He realizes it's the Lord, the Christ talking to him. He jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore to go after Christ. So he's back to doing his job. We know from 1 Corinthians 9, 5, that Paul is talking about that many of the disciples, and he calls out Peter by name, he says, Cephas, they still all have a family. They still all have a wife. So Peter didn't actually have to give up anything. He put it down for a while, but Christ is not telling you to follow me, you have to get divorced, to follow me that you have to go sell your house. He's not saying that. He's saying to follow me, simply prioritize me first. Because all these things are going to be added onto you. He said in this age, you don't actually give up all these things. You're actually gaining a greater fellowship by following me. You're not losing house and mother and lands and brothers and sisters. You're going to gain them. But the idea is that you have to prioritize Jesus first. And just to be clear, God does not have an issue with wealth. He doesn't have an issue with power. In fact, when we look at it from Luke's account, you're in Luke chapter 18. The next chapter, one of the first things you hear about is Jesus's interaction with another rich man, that rich man being Zacchaeus, right? The Bible says that Zacchaeus went, gave half of what he had to the poor, and then he used the other part to pay back those he had defrauded up to four times as much as what he took. So there you have it, rich God, Jesus, interacting with another rich person. And then you have an interaction where that person gives everything they got. So they prioritize that it's not about the possessions, it's not about the issue of wealth, it's not about the issue of power. It's about prioritization of putting God first because God loved us first. When you look at this story, when you think about the rich young ruler, like I said, there's, very, there's many things that we can pull together and, and understand. But we got to see ourselves in this young man, that in our condition and in our attempt to tie and strive to gain God's favor, we're doing that part in vain. Because Christ is not asking us to make a sacrifice. Christ is simply asking us to make a trade. He went to the Father and he set up this plan to sacrifice for us, that he would pay the ultimate price for the penalty of sins. Christ is not telling you to die. He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to have eternal life through him. The idea of eternal life for the Christian is something that we should think about on an everyday basis. So the question for you today, and this is the appeal, is that it's not a matter of are you willing to make a sacrifice for Christ. That's not the question. But are you willing honestly to trade whatever it is you're idolizing, whatever it is that you hold on to so dearly for the gift of eternal life? Like the parable of the hidden treasure, will you say to God, everything that I have 
is yours for you to direct me and tell me what I should do with it. And the account from Matthew, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. The word perfect, when Jesus uses it, is not that if the young man were to somehow miraculously keep all the Ten Commandments perfectly, that yet he would have eternal life. What Jesus was actually saying was to him, based off the word that's used, is that if you would be perfect, that means if you would have, take the time to allow your mental and your spiritual moral character to grow in me, then you'll have eternal life. That's the sense of the word perfect that Jesus was using. It was a lifelong walk of putting away your old self and walking with Christ daily. That's how you become perfected. That's how you become changed into the character of God. So the two choices that I'm presenting for you today, as you move forward on your Christian journey is this. If you want to compare yourself to the rich young ruler, you can hear what Jesus has to say, and you can go home sad today. Because in your inner thoughts, you're going to choose and say, you know what, God, not yet. There's still some things I want to hold on to. There's some things that I value more importantly than you. That's what you're saying. That's what the rich young ruler said at the time. If that's your choice, just remain seated. The second choice is this. You're making the private internal decision that's going to be expressed publicly by what you have to say and how you live your life, that you're willing to prioritize and put Jesus Christ first. That when God calls, you're not going to say, Lord, I'm perfect, I'm ready. You're going to simply say, Lord, I'm willing, what do you want me to do? If that's your decision, I also want you to remain seated. Look, whether you stand or remain seated means nothing to me. I'm a nobody in the grand scheme of all of this. This is an individual decision that you got to decide for yourself is eternity worth everything that I have at my fingertips. That's your choice, that's my choice. Regardless of our position and how we want to make people believe we're doing the right thing on an everyday basis, the choice is really inside here. And only God knows your heart? Yeah, only he does. So whether you choose to go home sad and continue doing what you're doing, or whether you choose to make the decision to prioritize God first and say, you know what, God, I hear you calling. I'm ready. What do you want me to do? That's your choice. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. Are you going to surrender your time? He's calling. Are you going to surrender your talents for his use? He's calling. Are you going to surrender the time you spend prioritizing other things? He's calling. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus was dialoguing with him and telling him, you know what, you have to be born again. You have to put away this old self and you have to put me in a position of prominence that when I'm lifted up, the gifts that I have to offer, you're going to receive them. The call for baptism, as we use it in the Christian church, is not one for perfection. It's simply to say, I'm in error. I need a savior 
who is perfect, and all I have to do now is simply follow him. That's the call. Christ is calling. What we get from the rich young ruler, hey, life may be worth living now, but is there a life and eternity worth even more living so that I'm willing to trade in all the benefits that this life has to offer if God calls me to do so? He may call me to sell a home. He may call you simply to just go out and give somebody a cold drink of water. I don't know what he's going to do, but are you going to prioritize him first? At this time, I just want to open it up for anybody who wants to offer their life to Christ, to say simply, you know what, Lord, I hear you calling. I want to give my life to you through baptism. I'm not perfect, but I'm ready. I'm not perfect, but I'm present. I'm not perfect, but now I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm going to pause and simply allow you to step out and come forward so we can acknowledge you, pray with you, and get you started on that journey. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. What are you willing to surrender? going to pause a few moments. What are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender it all for the love that Jesus has for you? <laughs> 